Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show, brought to you by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Lots of stuff we're going to get into today in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Just a reminder, anything that's on your mind, please, you can contact me through the chat room on Periscope or Facebook Live or YouTube when it's on Premiere. Or you can give the show a call. The number right here is 732-364-3598. So you had an interesting weekend in the National Football League. And it's weird how sometimes a random nationally televised game can turn out to be so interesting and fascinating to watch. I mean, if you've followed football over the last several years, you've watched Monday Night Football go from being the draw, the game, the um, make sure that you are around so you can watch this game in any way, shape, or form to kind of the afterthought that it is now. Thursday Night Football has not kicked off and performed as well as people would have expected. And a lot of that, you know, you want to see in whatever you'd say your primetime game is. And, you know, Fox usually does a good job of making sure whether it's centered around the Cowboys or whatever. You know, New Orleans, they usually get a pretty good prime uh, prime Sunday 4 o'clock game in there. Now, you know, on uh, CBS, they end up having a game between the Chargers and the Tennessee Titans. Two teams that came in the game 2-4. Two, two teams that came in the game thinking about their very limited or small postseason and playoff chances. Knowing that they're going to have to turn their play around if they're going to have a chance to win. And you look at that and you're just like, yeah, whatever. You know, maybe that game will be on in the background, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time paying attention to it. But I tell you, you can break this game down. And really from the moment of that third and one where the Titans are trying to get that last first down to pretty much be able to run out the clock, Chargers at that point, fourth quarter, between two and three minutes to go, Chargers don't have any timeouts, that it was a whirlwind of things going back and forth up until that last play with Melvin Gordon being stopped right short of the goal line. Um, other things we're going to talk about today, and I will get back to this in a little bit, uh, a little bit of a preview of what we're going to talk about. Like I said, whatever is on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, please let me know. I'm going to get the uh, comment rooms going in a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about the Black Sox, the 100th year anniversary. I'm not going to get too much into it. You know, I spent a lot of time as a historian researching it and, and discussing it for, for the last several years. I have a lot of literature out there through my blog and my website that has really broken down a lot of the different things that happened with the 1919 Black Sox. As we hit what we'll call the opening point here in the past fall show, the cuckoo clock, the whole thing. But I want to make a little bit of a comparison, since it is the 100-year anniversary, a couple similarities that are going on this year that are right up there with what happened then. So we will talk about that in a little bit. I'm going to talk about the 1923 Yankees, because here's, here's the reason I'm going to bring it up. The Washington Nationals, first time in the World Series, the opportunity to win their first World Series, just a couple of years ago, the Houston Astros won their first World Series. And every team in Major League Baseball, for the exception of the seven teams that have never won, 
the Washington Nationals, San Diego Padres, Colorado Rockies, Milwaukee Brewers, Tampa Bay Rays, Seattle Mariners, and Texas Rangers, the other 23 teams have experienced a first at some point in their history. Yankees did it. For them, it was 1923. Prior to that, the Yankees had never won a World Series. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I do want to get back to this Titans-Chargers game because, let's be serious, how, how many times over the course of a football season are we going to be able to talk Chargers-Titans? Now, we may, we may bring it up in a little bit. We may bring it up in about three, four weeks when maybe one of these teams has run off about four or five straight wins and is in a playoff picture. Obviously, you're looking at this point from the Los Angeles Chargers, and the truth is it's been a disappointment. They won 12-4 and last year. We're one of the teams in the American Football Conference that were expected to maybe make a push to maybe get to the conference championship game, maybe compete with New England, maybe compete with the likes of the Kansas City Chiefs, and the same thing this year. Now, with their fifth loss, they've already lost more games than they did last year when they went 12-4. and Does it mean their season's over? No. But you could point to a couple different things that have not been as good. Their defense has not been as good as it was last year. Phillip Rivers has not been as good as he was in past years. Melvin Gordon holding out. Maybe that sent a little bit of a divide within the team. You know, Austin Eckler did okay, but the Chargers didn't win a lot of games when Melvin Gordon was out. And maybe it was an untimed holdout as he was out there looking for more money. Now, you can't say, hey, you know, greedy, you know, Melvin Gordon, look at him. Because he's doing everything or anything, the same thing, that anybody in the National Football League is going to do. He's got to set a precedence as far as what he is making for his position. The same thing that Zeke Elliott did. The same thing that Le'Veon Bell did. Now, what you're going to say about Gordon, he ended up coming back. He ended his holdout. He's played football again. But it did it come at the expense of his team. At 2-5 and five right now, it doesn't look so good if you're a fan of the Los Angeles Chargers. But as I'm following this game, and I really felt like it, it's something that, hey, maybe maybe some of the national shows are picking it up. Maybe it's something that gets brought up here in a little bit of a tidbit. I think a lot of people are talking Eagles-Cowboys. Good performance by the Cowboys at home in a game they absolutely needed to win, beating a good Philadelphia Eagles team. Some of the other games that happened over the course of the day, New Orleans with a a big win, nice performance at Chicago. But not a lot of attention is going to be for the nth time when I talk about the L.A. Chargers and the Tennessee Titans. But to me, this was the most interesting game to watch all week, and you would not have expected that. You would not have said, hey, that's a big matchup. Make sure that it's on prime time. Make sure that the national audience gets to watch this game. Because in the end, Nobody's really caring about two, two, and four teams that are likely to not make the playoffs. The Titans just changed quarterbacks. Marcus Mariota's on the bench. Ryan Tannehill's in. That's not a national story. So how did this game go from being a game that nobody should care about to a game that had one of the more incredible finishes that we've seen in many years? I mean, it's not a, it wasn't a playoff game. It was not playoff atmosphere. Like I said, neither of these teams are likely to make the playoffs. So a little bit of a back and forth. Titans up 23-20. to 20. They're moving the ball downfield. They have a third down and one. And, you know, pass is completed. 
to, I believe, uh, one of the wide receivers. He ends up falling a little bit short of the first down. They go out there, they measure it, they find out that he's a little bit short of the first down. Titans end up going for it. Okay. Now, it's an interesting decision at the time because the Titans may have been better off just punting the football away, giving the Chargers the long field to go in a two-plus minutes because the Los Angeles Chargers didn't have any more timeouts. So, fourth down comes, the Titans decide to go for it. They actually go backwards on a quarterback sneak, and you can talk about an issue that was right then and there that you don't seem to understand why the coach is not able to challenge the spot in that situation. And maybe we could talk about some people that know the NFL rulebook a little bit better than I do, but my interpretation or my understanding of it is that the Titans and their coach, Mike Vrabel, should have been able to challenge the spot of that fourth down play, which could have very well ended the game if he got a more favorable spot. It looked like he didn't get a favorable spot. It looked like the ball was placed probably at the quarterback's worst point of momentum, which seemed to be where he ended. Now, when he went forward, it seemed like he got at least to around the first down marker. Now, you could say, you know, the spot is, you know, subjective, which it really is. But we're talking about challenges as they exist in football. Number one, the Titans have all their timeouts. Number two, they have the challenge available. Why are they not able to challenge the spot in that situation? So, the Chargers take over. They move the ball down the field. All of a sudden, they got receivers open. Hunter Henry, you know, Eckler. You know, they're open all over the place, flying down the field, and you're wondering, hey, are the Titans going to have enough chance to move the ball back down the field? Because the Chargers, they may score this quickly. And this is where the game gets a little bit odd. You're talking about a little pass to the halfback out of the backfield. Eckler looks like he's going to go untouched and in the end zone, cuts it back in, and all of a sudden it's close. And then all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, oh, I don't know if he really got in there. So they end up, you know, they, they give him the touchdown, which is the right call. And he say, hey, from the official standpoint, hey, if you're not sure, call the touchdown and make sure there's going to be a review. Within two minutes of the game, the reviews that are available come through the booth, come through the officiating crew. So they did the right thing by calling it a touchdown, and it kind of looked like it was at first. So they review this play. They end up look, looking it over, and basically where his knee is is not necessarily with the ball breaking the plane. So they, they overturn it. They have basically first and goal at the one-yard line. And they hand the ball to Melvin Gordon, and it looks like he's in. Once again, looks like game's over. Yeah, Eckler didn't get in or he did get in or just didn't get called, whatever. Melvin Gordon gets in, touchdown. Looks like the Los Angeles Chargers are going to come out ahead. Well, it wasn't ruled a touchdown. Now they're reviewing it. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Did Melvin Gordon get the ball over the end zone, into the end zone, passed it for a touchdown? They're reviewing it. Now, all of a sudden, wait, 
you know, there's a fumble, and maybe the Titans got it. So it was a little bit back and forth there. I thought it was just an incredible finish to a game. And think about it, from this perspective, obviously uh, the call is upheld, and actually it is ruled a fumble. So it's a rule to fumble, and the Titans recover. They recovered in the end zone, so it was a touchback. They get the kneel down, and the game is over. But the point that i got to make about this is how many games that have absolutely no significance end up with a finish like this. And I think it was ironic, and I think it worked out for the best interest of any of the national fans that were watching the game. You put a random game on between the Los Angeles Chargers and the Tennessee Titans, and you actually got to see probably one of the better finishes you're going to see in a game all season long. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial other use of the program, such as by charge or admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So anybody that is a baseball fan should be looking forward to the World Series starting Tuesday in Houston, Astros, Nationals. Now from that national, and obviously using the word national in a different way, uh, perspective probably doesn't get the hype of a Yankees-Dodgers World Series. Or even to a certain extent, Yankees-Cardinals. There's a certain amount of a national fan base that exists amongst the St. Louis Cardinals because of their history, because of the fact that they've won a lot. They've been to a lot of World Series. They've won 11 over the course of their history. So if it was Yankees, Cardinals, Fox would look at it and say ratings should be very good for that World Series. Now, does it mean, because the Nationals and the Astros are playing, that it's not going to get as high of ratings? It's probably not going to get as high of ratings in New York. We understand that. But... You know, for the exception of, let's say, Yankees fans or Cardinals fans that are just disappointed that their season ended, or even Dodgers fans for that standpoint. The Dodgers, you know, most wins in the National League were very much expected to represent the NL in the World Series this year, which would have been their third straight appearance, thought in that area, that region, amongst the fans, was that this was going to be the year the Dodgers finally won the World Series. Kind of like the them bums, the Brooklyn Dodger teams, all the World Series that they lost to the Yankees, 41, actually 16 and 20, but then he lost in 41, 47, 49, 52, 53. Finally, they won in 55, which we talked about last week. But you think of the Dodgers getting to the World Series the last two years, a team that pretty much is on par with either one of those teams, and you think of where it ranks in the National League, the best team there in a regular season in the National League, there's no question about it. But, you know, looking at you know, the fact that the Nationals are there for the first time in their history, going back to the Montreal Expos, 1969, all the way through 2004, they've been to Washington Nationals ever since. You think of the Senators who existed through 1960 before they became the Minnesota Twins, the Senators who came back in 1961 as the what is now the Texas Rangers, as they lasted through 71. No World Series game played in our nation's capital since 1933. A team in Washington of any sort had not won a World Series championship since 1924. So there is a lot of interesting things if you're thinking about baseball and history in Washington, D.C., and also the National slash Expos franchise. 
But the one thing that I wanted to talk about, because I find it pretty fascinating, is the Houston Astros winning the American League pennant. They won it in dramatic fashion, a Jose Altuve walk-off home run, and then the Yankees season. And listen, you can talk about a lot of different things that didn't go right for the Yankees. Sometimes you just get beat. And I know a loss at any point, especially when we're talking about postseason, can sting for a little while. Certainly is going to sting more for the players and the coaching staff and the manager and the front office and everybody that's involved in the Yankees organization. But as time goes by, you'll realize that sometimes the other team just got you. They, they've got you in that moment. Not that they're always going to get you. Not that they're going to get you next year if you're in the same spot. But this was the year for the Houston Astros to come out of the American League. So I was thinking of a weird similarity. When we're talking about the World Series this year in 2019, exactly 100 years. And it's the 100-year anniversary of the Black Sox and the Black Sox scandal. And you think about all the different things that were going on there. You obviously understand that players in Major League Baseball right now are much, much more compensated than they were back then. There were things in regards to bonuses that were being held back. We know about you know Eddie Seacott's uh, famous bonus he was going to get if he got 30 wins. And he was held back from a couple starts, keeping him at 29 so he didn't get the bonus. The ringleaders of the whole thing, which were Chick Gandel and Swede Reisberg, without their interest in wanting to get this thing going, there would not have been a throwing of the World Series. Now, you needed Seacott, you needed some of the other guys, even Joe Jackson, you know, his namesake, to be involved in this for, for the gamblers to actually pay anything out. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because you look at the Washington Nationals and they are going to come into this World Series as the underdog. In fact, the Houston Astros are 2-1 to favorite to win the World Series, which really is, in regards to baseball odds, is not something that you'd really expect. So if you're going to put money on the Houston Astros, you're going to have to lay up a lot more on the money line to win considerably less. Is it at the level of how favorited the Chicago White Sox of 1919 were going up against the Cincinnati Reds, who, pretty similar to the Washington Nationals slash Montreal Expos, are playing in their first World Series. So that's the other similarity. The Reds in 1919 have never been to the World Series. The Nationals in 2019 have never been to the World Series. Like I said, 100-year anniversary, Black Sox scandal. We also have this tidbit. The Astros won the World Series in 2017. And they're back in the World Series as favorites in 2019. You go back 100 years, the Chicago White Sox won the World Series in 1917. And obviously were the heavy favorites in 2019. I at least find the irony and stuff like that. Obviously, I'm not implying that there's going to be anything on the line. And I, I don't think gamblers, even from their perspective, have the ability to make so much more money or as much money as they could have made 100 years ago, where I have said that there were more World Series that were thrown. We just don't know about it. The 1914 Boston Braves, the most miracle team in the history of professional sports, the one that never gets spoken about, Odds are they could have won because the Philadelphia Athletics threw the World Series. 
This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability. You'll find no beer at any cost. So the 1923 New York Yankees, moving up, what we'll call four years from the infamous 1919 Black Sox scandal. Baseball, struggling at that point, certainly with the thought that gamblers were involved and the fact that gamblers could very well be involved again. And it's a scary thought, thinking about a game not being on the level. If you're a fan, you know, you get to a certain point, you want to feel that the action is being determined by who exactly is playing the games. Not that it's some act that one team's going to win. You know, and you think of WWE, and WWE is very successful for this reason, that it advertises itself more as a soap opera than it does a skills competition. It's more uh, out there for the audience to pay attention to because of the drama, because of the back and forth, not because it's a competition of the greatest and most skilled fighters. Now, the, the wrestlers... In WWE, some of them take probably more pride in what they do than others. So they may not necessarily want to hear that. But the reason that WWE is so successful is because everybody understands that it's just an act. Everybody understands that it's more of a soap opera or a drama than an actual skills competition. So when you think of a sport like baseball, when you know its integrity... And the fact that the game, whether the game was being played on a level or not, was on the line, you know, fans kind of didn't want anything to do with it. They started paying attention more to college football. They started paying attention even a little bit more to pro football. But they wanted to stay away from baseball because they thought the integrity of the game was not what it was supposed to be. Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis uh, ends up getting his reign. You know, the former judge, he becomes the first commissioner in Major League Baseball history, and it really isn't until the likes of this guy named Babe Ruth that comes out there after being traded from the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees, and he goes out there and he hits a bunch of home runs, that the popularity of baseball starts to come back. But we think of the Yankees, and it's easy to talk about 27 World Series championships. The majority of the World Series championships happened in just about everybody's uh, past life or before they were born. The first one was 1923. And we look at the Yankees and we just think of their, their juggernauts, their this incredible franchise, this organization, this baseball team that has this rich championship pedigree and history. Prior to 1923, that didn't exist. And I'll share my article again um, it's up on johnpla.com. We'll share it through social media. It's called Before the 27, When the Underdog Yankees Won Their First World Series. And I spent a lot of time talking about the early history of the New York Yankees. The fact that, for whatever reason, when the junior circuit opened in 1901, when the American League became a major league in Major League Baseball and went there to be a competition of the National League for whatever reason, there was not a team included in the city of New York. And I'll try to run this off the top of my head, which I should be able to. 
They had teams in Chicago. They had teams in Philadelphia, in Milwaukee, in Boston, in Washington, D.C., in Detroit. And, of course, yeah, Cleveland. And the other team was in Baltimore. So you're talking about eight teams that existed in the original American League. No team in St. Louis, which the St. Louis Browns started in 1902. In 1901, they were the Milwaukee Brewers. And the Baltimore Orioles, who existed in 1901 and 1902. And really, if it wasn't for a weird and strange series of events, the Baltimore Orioles could have existed as an American League team for a long time. John McGraw had jumped over from the National League, brought a lot of his uh, teammates, a lot of players that he trusted, you know, Roger Breshnahan, Joe Kelly, you know, a series of guys that were really good players from the National League. They came over to uh, pretty much spark this American League team. And from an ownership perspective, and sometimes all it takes is just an owner that does not have what it takes to run a franchise. Sometimes you think you could do it from a financial perspective, and then you realize you got to put a lot more money into a sports franchise than you really thought, and then all of a sudden you're cutting corners. All of a sudden, you have to debate whether or not you really want to be an owner of a professional sports team, and that's really what happened. Um, he would end up, the owner would end up sending, selling his team to uh, Brush and Friedman, who were the owners of the Cincinnati Reds and the New York Giants, respectively, obviously creating a conflict of interest. Now, unfortunately, the you know Van Johnson being the commissioner didn't have the power to, to really do anything about it from, an, from the American League, and there was no commissioner of Major League Baseball. There was no commissioner of all of Major League Baseball to judge what is right and what is wrong. So the fact that the owning interest of the Baltimore Orioles were sold to two owners of the National League, anybody could agree that it was a conflict of interest involved and was not in the best interest of Major League Baseball going forward. So, obviously, the Baltimore Orioles roster is raided. McGraw leaves. He goes joins the Giants as a player manager, and obviously the rest there is history. And the Baltimore Orioles as a franchise are pretty much depleted until it's taken over by Ben Johnson, the commissioner of the American League, for the last couple months of the year. So this opportunity was taken and used to get a team into New York, which is what Ben Johnson and the commissioner of the American League wanted to do all along. So the New York Highlanders take over as a baseball team in 1903, and really through 1912, their entire time, that they were known as the New York Highlanders. They were not a good baseball team. A couple second-place finishes. You think of guys like Jack Chesborough, uh, Jesse Tannehill, uh, Clark Griffith, who was the manager, was also a good pitcher on that team. But they never really gained much momentum. Uh, the American League belonged to the Philadelphia Athletics and the Chicago White Sox. You know, two teams that really had a lot more power and a lot more clout. So the Yankees really don't turn around as a franchise until they hire Miller Huggins away from the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, it was a little bit of a controversial hire at the time because Huggins, leading the St. Louis Cardinals, did not necessarily um, separate himself 
It's not like the Cardinals were good. It wasn't the Cardinals of the 30s or the 40s where, where they were much better under the likes of Branch Rickey. Now, Miller Huggins, respected as a baseball man, after some debate back and forth between the hierarchy and the ownership of the New York Yankees, it was decided that Huggins was going to be brought in and named manager of the New York Yankees. First couple of years, things didn't go too well. Now, coincidentally, they had this guy named Babe Ruth, and suddenly they're in the World Series in 1921, playing up against, ironically, John McGraw and the New York Giants. Yankees don't get the job done. 1922 comes, rematch of the 1921 World Series. John McGraw and the Giants get the most and the best of the New York Yankees in that series. So you're talking about going into the 1923 season, the New York Yankees with a 0-2 and two record in World Series play. Going up against the Giants, who had now won three World Series championships. Teams in the American League, the Boston Red Sox, who had won what, five World Series at that point, were kind of the Yankees of the American League or the Yankees of Major League Baseball at that time. You, know, you think of the White Sox, who had a couple World Series championships, of course, should have had a third one. Teams like the Cubs, the Philadelphia Athletics, and their three World Series. So you're looking, when you talk about the dominance and how great the New York Yankees are, and the first thing you say, hey, 27 World Series championships, it wasn't always that way. There was a time where the New York Yankees, just like potentially the Washington Nationals this year, just like the Houston Astros of a couple of years ago, where you could say that the Yankees had never won a World Series championship before. And I'm not going to talk about this article too much, but that being said, I will share it a couple more times because I do think there's some bits of information in there that are interesting for, for any baseball fan, but certainly that baseball fan that has an interest in baseball history because the Yankees didn't go from, you know, zero World Series to 27 World Series championships. And obviously there was a, diff a bunch of different groups of owners and front offices and managers and players and coaches and fans, for that matter, that witnessed all these 27 World Series championships. But uh, at some point, when we look at the seven teams that remain in Major League Baseball that have never won a World Series championship themselves... Hopefully a time will come, and each one of these seven teams, the Nationals who have a chance this year, and like I said before, the Padres and the Brewers and the Rockies in the National League, and the Rangers and the Mariners and the Tampa Bay Rays of the American League, could finally get their due. And that's one of the things I always strive for or hope for in Major League Baseball, because it's my sport. I'd like to see every fan base have their World Series championship to kind of lay your hat on. Say, hey, at least we won in this year. Houston Nationals got that in 2017. They were the latest team in Major League Baseball to win their first World Series. So as we get towards the end of the week, and you know, maybe we'll do a show you know, Thursday or Friday or Saturday, um, I'm kind of thinking of where I want to go in this series. The Astros, I like the dominance. I like the fact that their team is very well put together. And one of the things I've talked about in sports is how very quietly... I enjoy seeing teams dominate a sport. I like dynasties. I know dynasties are very hard to come by. That's why what the New England Patriots have done in the National Football League is absolutely outstanding. You know, the Golden State Warriors. I'm not going to ever say that I'm a fan, but I enjoy the dominance that they had over the National Basketball Association for what they had. 
you know, the San Francisco Giants in baseball sport where it's so hard to have a dynasty manage to take three distinct teams in 2010, 2012, and 2014 and win three World Series championships and really be the most dominant team within a five-year window over the last 20 years. Can the Astros do that? I have some interest in that. And also have some interest in, hey, what would it be like to see the Washington Nationals win themselves their first World Series championship, the first World Series championship in the history of the Montreal Expos slash Washington Nationals, obviously the first World Series championship in the District of Columbia since 1924, the first World Series games played in Washington, D.C. since 1933. I think that's a lot. There's a lot of fascinating things to look at in regards to this World Series. You want to give me a guess, though? I'm going to go Astros in six. We'll see how it ends up working out. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Castrol, engineered for today's smaller cars. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, by St. Alwish Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. So last topic we're going to hit up today. Um, I was thinking about this as it could apply to the New York Mets, but could also apply to a lot of teams in Major League Baseball. You're thinking about one position on the diamond, that may seem to be lacking a little bit more than most others. Now you can say catcher, sure, but there's a good amount of really good catchers. There's certainly a good amount of up-and-coming Major League catchers as we've looked and watched over the last couple of seasons. Now is there as much of an emphasis on making sure that you have a good all-around center fielder in 2019 as in past years. You could think of the great Mike Trout, the best player in baseball, certainly has paved himself a red carpet ride or a magic carpet ride into the Hall of Fame once he, once he accumulates 10 years and hopefully he could continue to be on the pace that he is over the course of his major league career and finish off with some of the most iconic totals that anybody can in baseball history. But He's a center fielder. Outside of that, you, know, you look at some guys that have some ability. You can talk about a Mookie Betts who plays right field, would probably be a pretty good center fielder. Juan Soto is a left fielder for Washington Nationals. If he played center field, I'm sure he'd probably uh, do a pretty good job there. But you, know, you look really throughout the sport, you're looking at a position that is relatively quiet. There isn't that much of a dominance within that position. And I think there are teams that are holding on to some players that if, for whatever reason, they decided to move them, they could get some resources for that player, but also that other team can end up getting a center fielder and maybe use that position to help them get over the top in the near future in 2020 and beyond. You know, you think of the Houston Astros who run George Springer out there in center field. George Springer... Great ball player, good power hitter, could get on base. It is a really important cog to that Houston Astros lineup. But all in all, is he really a center fielder? Probably not. He may be better off moving over to one of the corners. Jake Marisnik comes in to play center field in defensive situations when Springer moves to left. I'm sorry, right, and Josh Reddick moves to left. So, you know, you look at that and you say, all right, is that necessarily the Astros' best defensive alignment? So, to me, it's getting to the bigger picture. 
when I really think it's important to analyze exactly how important a good defensive center fielder is in a grand scheme of a Major League Baseball team. Because you're seeing up to a certain point a little bit of a divide. Jackie Bradley Jr. is all field and no hit with the Boston Red Sox. Juan Lagares is almost unplayable as an offensive player. May not necessarily, excuse me, be the best the th defensive center fielder he was in years past or in Ghosts of Christmas past, but is a very good option to have in center field. Jake Marisnik, great defensive center fielder, but his bat does not warrant him playing every day. So baseball teams have, in the offensive age that we're in, have overemphasized making sure that they put their best lineup on the field. You look at a guy like Aaron Hicks with the Yankees, plays very good defense in center field, is a capable offensive player, probably a more than capable offensive player. You can bat him anywhere, probably anywhere in the lineup that you want to. And there's a value in that. When you find that good two-way player that can play center field, a premium position, you lock that guy up for seven years. And Yankees fans may look back and say, oh, I can't believe that you signed Aaron Hicks to a seven-year contract extension. It makes perfect sense because he's a guy that has proven that he could be an elite center fielder from a defensive standpoint, but also can be a top-of-the-order, middle-of-the-order, or bottom-of-the-order bat and provide some quality offense. Now, there are some guys, if you look at some Major League Baseball teams, that I believe there should be some discussion about in regards to trades. One of them is going to be Starling Marte. And I think Starling Marte with the Pittsburgh Pirates, it would make a lot of sense for general manager Neil Huntington to be open-minded enough to say, hey, what can we get for Marte? Not that Marte is going to get any worse, but the Pirates are not looking to win this year. It's unfortunate. They traded for Chris Archer a couple years ago, a trade that pretty much blew up in their face. They got some turmoil in the clubhouse. They probably want to move on from the likes of, of guys like Felipe Vasquez and Kyle Crick, who just don't seem like they're very good people. But moving Marte and getting a reasonable return would make a lot of sense for the Pittsburgh Pirates. So when I throw a name out there, all of a sudden you have to start thinking about some other names in regards to Major League Baseball and center fielders that probably could be moved too. Now, if I'm the Minnesota Twins, I'm holding up the highest price possible when it comes to Byron Buxton because I believe Byron Buxton has got a level of his game that we haven't even seen yet. I could see him being a 30 home run guy. I could see him being a 30-30 guy. I could see him being a 300 hitter or a number three hitter, maybe the best hitter in the entire lineup of the Minnesota Twins. And it's saying a lot because we're talking about a team that set a major league record with it's over 300 home runs that it hit last year. So, you know, Byron Buxton getting better. Well, if I'm the Twins, maybe I do want to hold on to him. But I may want to take this ransom letter and hand it out to the other 29 teams and say, hey, if you really are willing to, to overpay, if you're willing to unload your farm system, give us some major league talent and some good minor league talent, we may be open-minded enough to move this guy. That could turn out to be the biggest blockbuster of this offseason. And the Twins don't have to do it. They can extend Buxton, make him a face of the franchise. Well, it would help also if Byron picked his game up a little bit, which I believe like he can from an offensive standpoint. So I think of the next player. And he plays center field for the Oakland Athletics. 
and a team that we spent a lot of time talking about, Matt Chapman, Matt Olson. We, uh, we're learning about this guy named Marcus Simeon, who had 30 home runs as a shortstop. And we tend to not spend a lot of time talking about Ramon Laureano. And I think Ramon Laureano has the ability to really become an up-and-coming star. And if you're the Oakland Athletics, you start to look at the potential longevity that you have in a little bit of a run that you had. And I understand you lost the wildcard game a couple of years ago. You won the wildcard game this past year. And end up, I'm sorry, you lost the wildcard game this year, won the, the wildcard game. No, actually, you're, you're zero for two. You lost two straight wildcard games. Can you get it right, John? Can you figure out what the hell that you're talking about right now? So the Athletics have a team that's good enough to get to the playoffs, but not a team that's good enough to get past the wildcard game. Maybe a team that in 2020 can be, but they can hang their hat on the development of some good young players, and one of them, of course, is Ramon Laureano. Great defensive center fielder, 20-home run bat, guy you could bat either first or third, and pretty similar to Byron Buxton, pretty similar to the, the thought that the Minnesota Twins would have, I'd hold up a very high price. And I say, hey, I'd be open-minded to moving him. I understand the team control that you're getting, but all of that is going to factor in the package that we're going to get in return if we do decide to trade this player. And if we don't trade this player, he's a great piece to build our team around going forward. Then we start to talk about some players that may not necessarily be a good piece to build their team around. And we'll start with Jackie Bradley. We'll talk about guys like uh, Kevin Pilar and even Odubel Herrera. And we'll start with Jackie Bradley. And I do think the Boston Red Sox are going to look to move on from Bradley. Ideally, and I think their front office and the structure, the way it's set up, whoever's running the team right now, or whoever will be running the team within the next couple weeks or months, are going to look at Bradley as the ideal player to trade. About $11, $12 million he'll be making in uh, salary arbitration this year. The all-field, no-hit center fielder, you know, from a defensive standpoint, the Red Sox are going to be fine. But when you got guys like Mookie Betts, who could certainly be a center fielder, and you also have Andrew Benatendi, uh, he seems to be the most expendable piece. Now, the other side of it, obviously, is the demand that should or may or may not be out there in regards to the other side. How many teams are knocking on the door of the Boston Red Sox in Fenway Park and trying to get a hold of John Henry and whoever's running that franchise right now and saying, hey, what do I got to do to get Jackie Bradley? You know it's going to take some finagling, uh, probably a return that may not be so desirable for the Boston Red Sox. So then you talk about the potential of trading Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts getting set for free agency. It doesn't look like they're going to come to an agreement on a new contract extension. And if they do, the Red Sox know exactly what it's going to cost them. It's going to cost more money than they're willing to pay right now. They're over the luxury tax threshold. The owner has pretty much mandated that they get below the luxury tax threshold as soon as possible. That's why David Dombrowski isn't there anymore. The guy won a World Series with the team in 2018. He doesn't have a job as we get set for the 2020 season. So Mookie Betts could be had. But the problem is that team that's trading for Mookie Betts, better make sure you sign them. Because the Red Sox aren't going to just take your bag of balls or whatever it is that you want to give up for the likes and the rights to Mookie Betts. So, you know, I think of a guy like Kevin Pillar. Good defensive player. Maybe not the defensive player he was two, three years ago when he was in Toronto. Not a very good offensive player. 
Giants used them this past year. They picked them up in a trade from Toronto. Didn't really hit that much. Is this a player that you necessarily, if you're the, the San Francisco Giants, want to build your team around going forward? And the answer is no. So you look at you look at it from that perspective and you say, hey, can we trade him? You probably can. And then if you're a team that says, hey, I want a good defensive center fielder, maybe that's the guy you go out there and get because it's not going to cost you very much money. Another player that if you want to dabble in the domestic violence stuff that goes on in Major League Baseball, the Yankees got to deal with it with Domingo Herman, had to deal with it with Aroldis Chapman, you know about the Mets with Jose Reyes, you know about the situation with Felipe Vasquez and the Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, the Phillies got that problem right now with Adubal Herrera. He ended up not playing the rest of the year. Some sort of incident happened. We don't know the severity or the length of it. It hasn't been reported. But if you're another team, you say, hey, this could be a player that may be worth picking up. Well, from a camaraderie standpoint, doesn't necessarily send the best vibes. But I also think that the Phillies could potentially sell low on this guy where it kind of seems like they're willing and ready to move on for him. So that's an option. And then there's some other players out there like Manuel Margot with the San Diego Padres. I know A.J. Preller, the general manager, is kind of been trying to throw him in to a deal with the New York Mets for Noah Syndergaard. I don't know if he's necessarily that headline type of player. If he is, he hasn't showed it at the major league level yet. There's a guy by the name of Kevin Kiermeyer who probably gets all the credit that he deserves, and then some when it comes to how good of a defensive player he is as a center fielder. Now, is this as a center fielder, is he as great of an asset as a quality offensive player? The answer is no, and that's why he's kind of overrated. A little bit of a recap of the show today, and I do want to hit the comment feed right now. Uh, Sean08111 says go team and then uh campbell love says sports just suck and you know what normally i wouldn't address a comment like that but campbell love i do have to throw this message out there whether whatever whatever it is that you want to use whether it's sports whether it's entertainment whether it is music we try to use things that may be a little artificial in a way and i think sports from a uh uh, impact on our everyday lives is very artificial. We use sports or entertainment or music as a sanctuary to get away from the unfortunate and unfair uh, things that we see in our everyday life. You turn on the news, all you see is negativity. People always want to throw their political opinions out at you. We have a job to do, sure. A lot of people love our jobs or their jobs and love the fact that they have a job. But it's, it's, you know, you look for something to break up the monotony of it. And I think sports do a real good job with that. But if you don't like sports, there's nothing wrong with that either. But do you enjoy entertainment? Do you enjoy music? Because hopefully those other sanctuaries can keep you hopefully balanced in a world and a country where there's so many negative distractions. So we'll throw a little quick recap of the show today. We talked about the weird finish in the L.A. Chargers-Tennessee Titans game yesterday. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the 1923 Yankees, the Black Sox scandal in 1919, 100-year anniversary, 
the fact that there are some similarities. Uh, you got the, the White Sox who won the World Series in 1917. The Astros, a chance that they're favorite to win the World Series here in 2019. They won in 2017. You got the Washington Nationals in their first World Series ever. Cincinnati Reds, the opponent of the Chicago White Sox of 1919, were in their first World Series ever. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the 1923 Yankees and the fact that, hey, every team in sports was in that spot where they had zero World Series championships. What was it like for the 1923 Yankees to win their first World Series? We also spoke about center fielders. And Major League Baseball is a position a little bit overrated now. How much of a defensive specialist are you looking to put out there at the expense of your offense? Teams don't seem to want to do that on a day-in and day-out basis anymore. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Passball Show. I'm always glad to be with you. Uh, we'll tune, hopefully tune in sometime towards the end of the week as we'll try to knock out another show. Uh, as always, God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.